A very quick favor to ask before we get started. I have a completely anonymous survey I would like you to take. It's only 13 questions. None of them are essay questions, so it's super quick. Check it out at podsurvey.com slash left. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The Tom Hartman Program, Counterspin, Economic Update, and The F Word with Laura Flanders. We've had the Cuban embargo for 54 years here in America. And it was this close to working before Obama went and screwed it up. (laughs) Who thinks that? Who thinks it was on the precipice of working? All right. So uh, new uh, news coming out of the administration that uh, we uh, actually have some sort of deal with the Cubans. Now, it's not like the embargo has been lifted. It has not. Okay, there's still a lot of restrictions. I'm going to explain all that to you. Uh, but let me go back in time a little bit here to about a year ago when uh, we had, uh, what, what gate were they called? Handshake gate. Remember when uh, President Obama shook hands with Raul Castro uh, when there were other international leaders? Uh, that Boy, that was shocking. And uh, how dare he uh, treat him like a human being? He should have spit in his eye. Okay, now, at the time... Um, John McCain had said, I mean, what's the point? Neville Chamberlain shook hands with Hitler. <laughs> a little much? Actually, later, McCain went on to say, yeah, that was, that, that was too much. Sorry. A bit of an exaggeration. <laughs> okay. But he also said this at, at that time. Why should you shake hands with someone who's keeping Americans in prison? John, we have our answer today. It's to get them out. Alan Gross was being kept in prison in Cuba. He has been released. Oh, that's why you talk to people who don't agree with you. You talk to your enemies because those are the guys you're going to make a deal with. Because it's easy to talk to your allies. You can agree all day long about wonderful things that you're both completely sure of. That isn't the tricky part. The tricky part is talk to people you don't agree with so you can get some sort of deal. In this case, Alan Gross, who was being kept in prison for over five years in Cuba, who's a U.S. citizen, has now been released. Now, I'm going to tell you all about him as well. Uh, he actually turned out to be a guy who was working with USA. Now, those are guys who actually wanted to make sure that they got, got around the censorship in Cuba. Now, don't get me wrong. I love Alan Gross. Yeah, he was trying to get more interconnectivity, specifically for, for the Jewish community in Cuba. Who knew? Well, actually, I knew because I had a friend in Miami who used to call himself a Juban. So, yes, there are Jewish Cubans, right? And, but mainly to get around the censorship. Now, the Cuban government is totally against USAID, uh, and they think that it works with the American government to undermine their regime, and they're the ones who put in the censorship. So Alan Gross was breaking those laws, and so they put him in jail. Now, that was the risk that Alan was taking, and we love him for taking that risk and for making that effort, because we're against the censorship in Cuba. We're against the government of Cuba overall. I am. I I think that they, it's not like communism worked either. It's not like, oh, 54 years later, they're on the precipice of succeeding. They are not at all. If you go to Cuba, you'll see, as Ben Mankus often says, uh, co-host here on the Young Turks, uh, the entire country seems like frozen in time in the 1950s. And the entire country also needs a new uh, coat of paint. Okay. Now, look, that's partly because of our sanctions. So our sanctions did not topple the Castro regime. The Castros have been in charge that entire time. It didn't work. It didn't work. 
What it did do was cause a lot of suffering for the Cuban people. And if you care about Cuba and you want to liberate them, it's not the best way to go about accomplishing your objectives. It doesn't, it doesn't work. It hasn't worked. So it was time for a change. So here's President Obama announcing that change. We will end an outdated approach that for decades has failed to advance our interests. And instead, we will begin to normalize relations between our two countries. Through these changes, we intend to create more opportunities for the American and Cuban people. Neither the American nor Cuban people are well served by a rigid policy that's rooted in events that took place before most of us were born. With the changes I'm announcing today, it will be easier for Americans to travel to Cuba. And Americans will be able to use American credit and debit cards on the island. Nobody represents America's values better than the American people. And I believe this contact will ultimately do more to empower the Cuban people. But I'm under no illusion about the continued barriers to freedom that remain for ordinary Cubans. The United States believes that no Cuban should face harassment or arrest or beatings simply because they're exercising a universal right to have their voices heard. And we will continue to support civil society there. Moreover, given Cuba's history, I expect it will continue to pursue foreign policies that will at times be sharply at odds with American interests. I do not expect the changes I'm announcing today to bring about a transformation of Cuban society overnight. Look, incredibly reasonable statement there and very reasonable action here. And as I saw this this morning, I thought, look, this is one of the upsides of having a Democratic president. A Republican president would not have done this. They haven't done it in the past. They wouldn't do it in the future. They just wouldn't have done it. So as much as we get frustrated with President Obama from time to time, or nearly all the time, uh, there are moments like this where you realize it does make a difference. And it's going to make a difference in the lives of a lot of Cubans and uh, us Americans as well. So let me give you more of the details on what this deal is. Uh, the U.S. will take steps towards rest restoring diplomatic ties. The embar embargo's impact will be eased, but not completely taken away. It takes away some uh, pre-existing, or takes the pre-existing exceptions to the travel ban and expands them. But it doesn't mean that American tourists are welcome. They are not yet, okay? We will be reopening a U.S. embassy in Havana. That's terrific. We have embassies everywhere. Well, we can't have one in Havana. Um, and uh, part of the deal to get Alan Gross out involved releasing three Cuban spies that we caught here that were part of the WASP network. Now, uh, a lot of politicians here are complaining, how dare you, you can't release anybody! Now, what you're not hearing a lot about is, first, we got Alan Gross back. And they're pretending that he was just an average citizen who got, you know, kidnapped by the Cuban government. That's not what happened, right? Now, again, I, I love the work that he was doing, but he was circumventing their laws. That's what he was trying to do. He wasn't an average tourist there. So that's part of the deal. Another is a, an operative that we had in there that's been in prison for 20 years. The operative is not a U.S. citizen. They have not named him yet, but they are also going to release him. So one of our spies basically gets to go free as well. And 53 political prisoners in Cuba will also be released. So now, the Republicans and, and Menendez, who's a Democrat, who's another Cuban senator, Cuban-American senator, says, oh, we got nothing out of the deal. That's patently untrue. We actually got a lot out of the deal. Okay, so but let's continue on the list here. Um, easier for Americans to obtain licenses to do business in Cuba. Always got to keep the business going. You heard the credit cards and debit cards you'll be allowed to use in Cuba. Uh, now, you still can't have American tourism, but you can... Uh, visit for other purposes. 
uh, and there's a list of the reasons that you can visit there. Uh, you can send up to now $2,000 per year to your family in Cuba if you have family there. You can import up to $400 in goods from Cuba, including $100 in alcohol and tobacco. The most important part of that is that means Cuban cigars are back. Uh, they are allowed, and so everybody go nuts. <laughs> People will care about it. I don't care. Who cares? Anyway, <laughs> the substance of this is far more important, and it will be the first step, not the final step, the first step toward lifting some U.S. sanctions against Cuba. Now, uh, part of what Cuba is giving back to us is all the guys that are being released. It's also allowing citizens broader access to the Internet. Of course, not complete access, but much broader access. That's why Alan Gross went in the first place. So not only are they releasing Alan Gross, but they're helping to achieve part of his objective. That's wonderful. And along with the Internet comes a lot of new ideas and the beginnings of freedom. That's exactly what we're hoping for. And the fact that they have allowed that is a great step forward. And finally, they'll also allow uh, officials from the United Nations and International Committee of the Red Cross to return to their territory. Okay, all that is very important for the political prisoners that they're holding, among other things. Okay, so we've got a deal. It's a very good deal. I'm very happy about it, and and you should be as well. What is absolutely clear is that 54 years of failure was not magically going to turn into success tomorrow. Enough is enough. We, we know what isn't working. Let's move on to something that is working. The president just pointed out that we have been doing business with communist China for 35 years. We've been doing it in a way that has moved most of our manufacturing capacity to communist China. Their middle class at 350 million people is now larger than the entire population of the United States. Meanwhile, our middle class has gone from being a little over two-thirds of the, of the U.S. population to being about 20% of the U.S. population. Our poverty has exploded. Their poverty has decreased. We, you know, we have experience it, and and we haven't been sitting around going, "Oh, we got to stop those dirty commies from being commies." Why is that? I would submit to you the reason why is because the Communist Party in China is also a capitalist Communist Party. They're embracing capitalism. You know this. It, in a very real way, what's going on right now, what is happening on this historic day, here we are, December 17th, 2014, on this historic day, much like the day in, 2000, in 1961 when this embargo was declared or when the Cuban Missile Crisis happened or when the Bay of Pigs invasion happened, you know, any of those little landmarks, milestones that happened in 61, 62 there, that all of this is us waking up from the fog, the fevered fog of Richard Nixon. You know, we talk about how maybe we should prosecute George W. Bush for, for treason or for murder, for, for, you know, lying us into wars and all these kind of things. 
And it's, and there's a lot of rhetoric about how consequential the Bush presidency was, how, how its effects are going to linger for years. The, 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 the three to six trillion dollars on Iraq and Afghanistan, the, the lives of the soldiers, the, the, our reputation around the world, and particularly in the Middle East, and, an entire country covered with depleted uranium that's having an explosion of birth defects and all this kind of stuff. George Bush's presidency is going to affect the United States for the next 50 or 100 years. Similarly, Richard Nixon being vice president of the United States, excuse me, Richard Nixon being vice president from uh, 1952 until 1960 under Dwight Eisenhower, pushed Jack Kennedy to take this very, very anti-Castro position in the election of 1960. Nixon in 59 and 60, Nixon brought 10,000 Cuban expats to a CIA operation down in, in uh, South, South Florida that they referred to as the University of Miami and organized them, got this thing together to invade Cuba, the Bay of Pigs invasion. And it was supposed to happen in October of 1960, just before the election. It was going to be the thing, because Nixon was in charge of the Cuba desk. He was vice president of the United States. It was going to be the thing that was going to cause Nixon to easily win the 1960 election. Well, the Bay of Pigs invasion didn't go off. Uh, there were there were weather problems. There were logistics problems. There's a whole bunch of things that kind of blew it up. And Jack Kennedy inherited it. And Jack Kennedy and, and, and Nixon, and, and, and what's interesting is, you know, Nixon was like this fierce anti-communist. And you got to you know ask yourself what does that mean? Well, commun- it's it's a pol- it's an economic system combined with a political system. Why are we so hysterical about a country having an economic system where you can't have billionaires, but everybody has health care, everybody has a place to live, everybody has a free education? That's basically what we were doing. We were saying, oh my God, we can't have this. Now, I'm no fan of communism, except in a community of fewer than 200 people. You know, a kibbutz kind of thing. It works well, but you get larger than that, it doesn't work, in my opinion. But neither does laissez-faire capitalism. It always destroys the countries that it, that it infects when it's just raw, naked, unregulated capitalism. The kind of capitalism the Koch brothers are, and the Republican Party are pushing for. But it seems to me that what's going on here, you know, Jack Kennedy became a rabid anti-communist because he had to, in order to respond to Richard Nixon. Nixon was trying to use Cuba to beat Kennedy up in the election of 60, 60, 1960. Nixon was again in 1963 beating, uh, beating Kennedy up about the fact that Cuba was still communist and getting ready to run against Jack Kennedy again in 1964. And this is going to be the, the cornerstone of his, uh, his, uh, his run for the White House. So here we are, 50 years later, 53 years later, and we're saying, gee, I guess we're going to give up on those policies that really Richard Nixon drove. I mean, Richard Nixon, Eugene McCarthy, not Eugene McCarthy, uh, uh, who was who was the uh, senator? Was it Eugene? No, it, it wasn't Eugene McCarthy. It was... The McCarthy era, you know, Senator Joe McCarthy, uh, Joe McCarthy, all these guys, these these crazy right wing whack jobs. Uh, Daddy Coke, Fred Coke, starting the John Birch Society. They were all about hating communists. 
it seems to me that what's going on is we are now waking up. We're waking up from the, I, I, I said a little earlier, you know, had you asked me back in the 70s or 80s or 60s even, if the day would ever come when I could legally smoke pot in Washington, D.C. and then hop on a plane to Cuba, I would have said, no way. Here it is, today. And and both of those things are the legacy of Richard Nixon. Nixon's drug war, Nixon's war on drugs, has is, is almost single-handedly responsible for the explosion in our prison populations. And Nixon's war on communism that he started in 1952 when he was running as vice president with, with Eisenhower, and then he really banged that drum all the way up through the 70s. The Vietnam War was an extension of his war on communism. It all failed. God in his infinite wisdom put Richard Nixon on this earth to bring to us his heritage, one of priceless worth. His heritage is from heaven and the magic from above, the rapture of music and melody of culture and of love. A leader with endless courage, a miracle you might say, and all who have met Nixon love him so. The genius of his way. The surprise White House announcement of a shift in Cuba policy prompted a lot of media discussion. Some of it seemed a little over the top, like the banner USA Today headline, Cuban crisis ended after 56 years. Or the Washington Post story that began, the Cold War died Wednesday. Another Post article took the opportunity to belittle Cuba as, quote, a fly speck of an island that long ago ceased to be a threat to the United States, close quote. Well, one can argue about the extent of the Cuban threat to the U.S., but to call it a fly speck, literally speaking, bug excrement, is just inaccurate. Cuba is roughly the same size as Virginia, about three and a half times as big as Maryland, and more than 600 times the size of the District of Columbia. Does the Post consider them fly specks as well? And then there was New York Times columnist Nick Kristoff. He declared U.S. policy toward Cuba a decades-long failure. But he has a vision of how to bring about much-needed reforms there, the presence of more Americans. Quote, American tourists in Havana are already asking plaintively why Wi-Fi is so scarce or why the toilet paper is so rough. We need hordes of them, giggling at ancient cars held together with duct tape or comparing salaries with Cubans, close quote. So giggling Americans reminding Cubans that they're poor and have bad cars is going to do what exactly? Christoph closed with the hope that swarms of diplomats, tourists, and investors descend upon the island, preferably plump ones, he adds, which we guess will also show Cubans that Americans eat really well, too. Yes, you do. I'm speaking to you, and you know you do. Yes, you do. Why you gotta bring such attitude? First thing I notice when you speak, you sound as if the world hates you. That's why you seek to punish everybody, every fast and everything. Yet nobody's mad at you, learn some gratitude, yeah. 
You want another missing piece? What you need is love with a twofold increase. And you can find that something that lies underneath. But you're too rude to face the problem and see that you're too rude. This last week saw a political international bombshell. The United States decided to end the embargo of Cuba and to reestablish normal and full diplomatic relations with that island country 90 miles away. And I wanted not to talk about the politics. You will have many other opportunities to read and think and about all that. I want to do the economics because that's what we do on this program. So, 55 years of the United States trying to change politics in Cuba by imposing economic costs. It began really in 1960, a year after Fidel Castro overthrows the dictatorship of Fulgencio Batista in Cuba. In 1960, that a year after Castro comes to power with his revolutionaries, the United States imposes an embargo. The important thing to understand there is that the single most important product of the Cuban economy at that time was sugar. Sugar grows better in Cuba than it does anywhere else on the face of this planet. This small island of 7-8 million people is more efficient and produces better cane sugar uh, than anywhere on earth, and they sold it to the Colossus to their north, the United States, which has a sweet truth, and at that time particularly, imported virtually all the sugar Cuba could produce. When the United States said it would not buy any more sugar, when the United States government intervened in the free trade it celebrates elsewhere, to shut off free trade, to close the United States, to forbid American companies to buy and import Cuban sugar, they, of course, made the Cuban economy face imminent collapse, uh, which would happen in any society that was as dependent on one crop, and then saw the market for that crop cut off from one day to the next. What the Cubans did thereafter is, of course, understandable economically. They looked for someplace else to sell their sugar because their lives literally depended on it. The Soviet Union at the time stepped in and bought a huge amount. Other countries in Europe and elsewhere also. But this turning to the Soviet Union then led in 1961 to the United States to support, arm, equip, and transport an invasion of Cuba, the Bay of Pigs in 1961, and this was defeated by the Castro military and the Castro-led government and people of Cuba. And that pretty much then sent the relationships between the two countries into a deep freeze, lasting 50 years until this week. If the goal, economically speaking, was to change the government there, then the 50 years of deep freeze, the attack, the embargo, the refusal to have any diplomatic relations, has to be judged, economically speaking, a failure. If it was supposed to topple Castro, it was a failure. It did lead to the departure from Cuba of a large portion of its upper income and right-wing citizens. They moved to Florida and from there to other parts of the United States. That changed both 
what was the remaining population in Cuba, and it also affected politics in the United States, since these folks had a very particular take on the question of relations with Cuba uh, and made their views well known. Did it cause suffering among the Cuban people over the last 50 years? Absolutely. But it also calls economic changes that are at least as important as the suffering, because whatever the suffering did, it did not bring down the regime, it did not bring down Mr. Castro, so whatever the suffering did, it did not have the desired political effects. But it did have economic effects that are important for us to think about. And I'm going to only mention some of them. One, it created a solidarity among the Cuban people uh, that is extraordinary and is documented in many different ways. Even more important, it created a focus not on goods but on services because they couldn't bring goods in, because they couldn't sell their goods very well around the world. They didn't get from Russia and other countries to whom they sold sugar the kinds of rewards they had gotten earlier by selling it in the United States, and so on. As a goods economy, they didn't do so well. So they refocused themselves, the way people always do, on what they could do, which were services. Since a number of the people who left Cuba were doctors, since they were in the upper income group and disproportionately on the right wing politically, they had immediately to face a medical emergency. And here they did something very interesting. They decided to solve their medical emergency by undertaking a massive training of Cuban people at all levels, doctors, nurses, medical technicians, and so on. And this emergency-imposed refocusing of their economy turned out to give them an enormous boost. Cuba has become the source of teams of medical professionals, doctors, nurses, technicians, and so on, that Cuba has exported. That is, it has sent these teams around the world and used them to pay for imports that the Cubans needed. For example, thousands were sent to Venezuela to pay for the oil Cuba needed from Venezuela. And they were sent to many, many other countries. Cuba is the leading provider to this day of medical personnel to deal with the Ebola crisis in Western Africa. So it gave Cuba a whole new industry. Uh, here's another one that, that you might find interesting. Cuba's tourism changed. It had been a source of tourism income, but from gambling, from criminal elements that had made Havana a kind of 90 miles from America place where prostitution, drugs, gambling, things you could not legally do in the United States were kind of wide open. With the embargo from the United States, all of that stopped, and Cuban tourism was reoriented to being a tourism for middle and uh, income people from Europe who were organized to bring people for the beaches and for the wonderful climate that Cuban has, Cuba has. So it changed its whole tourism industry in a way that almost anybody who's reasonable would see as a plus. Finally, and just as important, the Cuban economy reoriented itself to a global economy. That is, Cuba stopped relying on one country overwhelmingly, the United States, which makes you very vulnerable. And it 
expanded and supported trade and uh, developments of all kinds with many different countries. Not just Russia, China, and the other parts of that world, but all over the world. Spain became very important, and so on, in, China, in Cuba's development. So it is less vulnerable to one particular trading partner. So these are advances for Cuba, and they have now, of course, the satisfaction, I suspect, of not having ever wanted the cutoff in relations with the United States, and now seeing that it is once again politically convenient to reestablish the relationships and to allow the free trade between the two uh, that the United States cut off for those 50 years. They say that Cuba is the enemy. I'm going down there anyway. I'm going down to Cuba to see my friends down there the river. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com to shop at just one of the major companies with the insatiable profit incentive to help perpetuate the destructive paradigm of overconsumption and exploitative capital. Better yet, go ahead and click through to the Amazon site that serves your country just once and then bookmark it to use every time you shop, which should be as rarely as possible. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumerism altogether or at least consuming in a subversive way. The Washington Post wasn't particularly cagey about their response to the victory of the Syriza party in Greece's recent election. The platform of Syriza leader Alexis Tsipras, the paper reported, was upbeat if improbable. And the radical leftist government, quote, represents a provocative challenge to the international creditors who bailed out Greece to the tune of $284 billion on the condition that the country rein in its bloated costs, close quote. Well, that's pretty much the storyline that much of corporate media have adopted. Greece was saved by creditors after they messed up their economy, but now that it's time to pay the piper, they're trying to squirrel out, uh, creating chaos at worst, at best setting a bad example. The silver lining for outlets like the Chicago Tribune is that the project is doomed. Greece won't, quote, win a vacation from economic reality because its citizens say they want one, close quote. So are Syriza starry-eyed and irresponsible utopians? What exactly is so frightening about their intentions? Here to fill us in on this is Mark Weisbrot, co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research and president of Just Foreign Policy. He joins us by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Counterspin, Mark Weisbrot. Thanks. Great to be with you. You know, I guess the uh, Orwellian part of this is who are the really the extremists here? Is it the European authorities, which some identify with the Germans, but it's more than them? Or is it uh, Syriza? 
back in May of 2010, when they signed their first agreement with the IMF, the debt was 115% of GDP, and the IMF and the European Commission, the ECB, the ones that have been making decisions ever since then, they said, okay, you do what we want and you'll recover, and your debt will be sustainable. So uh, now the debt is over 170% of GDP. They've had six years of recession. They lost a quarter of their GDP. 26% of their labor force is unemployed, double that for youth. It's clear who's been wrong here. Now, if you want to say that they should do more, they've already paid a huge unnecessary price, okay? Clearly, there was some adjustment that had to take place. But the purpose of any kind of loans or aid it should be to make that adjustment easier, not to make it 10 or 50 times worse than it has to be. And that's what they've done. So now they've adjusted. They've had one of the biggest reductions in imports in the world, 36%. And they have now a primary budget surplus, and they have a current account surplus. So the question is, when do they get to recover after six years of this? And that's what this fight is about. And Theresa is saying, look, we've paid too much of a price. We've enacted a lot of policies that were really regressive, like a big cut in the minimum wage, 40% cut in health care spending, change in labor law that weakens the bargaining power of labor, uh, laying off 20% of the national government workers. And we're going to reverse some of these because we want the economy to grow. We don't want 16% unemployment in 2018, which is what the IMF is projecting if everything goes well according to their program. So I think if you're looking at it from a more neutral point of view, it's clear that Syriza is the voice of reason as compared to the extremists that have destroyed not only the Greek economy, but have brought 11.5% unemployment in the Eurozone, which is more than twice what we have in the United States. Well, it's very interesting because this is being seen as a vote on austerity, but you're suggesting or saying that Greece has already carried out much of this austerity program that was set for it. They, they did it. They've done it all. And, in fact, there isn't that much left. That's why the economy grew very slightly, 0.6% in 2014, because the budget tightening basically has come to an end. And, again, the question is when do they get to recover and get jobs for all the people that have been out of work, or at least most of them. Well, it's hard not to be dismayed at the blithe confidence with which some media can deliver the most anti-democratic views. You know, you, you can't do this just because your people want it. You know, duh. You know, the, the whole story seems to say something broken um, about democracy and the ability of elected governments to set their own economic policy. Yes, and that's the thing that I think the media has missed most over the last few years. You see, you know, any number of press reports in the New York Times, which seem to acknowledge that these policies haven't worked or that they've made the economy worse. But what they don't see, I think, and what they really missed is that it's a fundamental lack of democracy, a big mistake that has led to this, and that is the Eurozone countries handed over the authority to make the most important economic decisions to these unaccountable bodies who not only are unaccountable, but really had, and this is what the press missed the most, they had a political agenda. They weren't just trying to collect debt. You know, this was never really a debt crisis so much as it was a political crisis brought on and prolonged 
by the fact that the European authorities wanted to remake these countries into something more like the United States, which is a much smaller uh, welfare state with much weaker unions and with reduced uh, spending on things like health care and pensions. And that's what they've been doing. If you go and look at the statements from the European authorities and the thousands of pages of IMF documents, which we have gone through since 2008, you can see their actual program and how they tried to implement it and how they actually used and prolonged the financial crisis, especially in the two years, 2011-2012, to get these things. They put an end to the financial crisis entirely in July of 2012 when the head of the European Central Bank, Mario Draghi, just said, we're going to do whatever it takes to save the euro. And that was the end of the financial part of the crisis right there. Now, they could have done that two years earlier, but they didn't because they wanted to use it to force these governments to do things that nobody would ever vote for. Well, that's why it rings so strange when I read in the New York Times that there's a conflict between, quote, voters in Greece who are desperate for some relief and those in Germany, Finland, and the Netherlands who do not want their taxes used to underwrite a blank check for countries that get into financial trouble, close quote. And the Times calls it all a conflict of democratic wills, as though citizens were really calling the shots here. Yeah, that's a very good point. That was a particularly big mistake, and it's one you see repeated in the media. Sure, there's some truth to it. I mean, there are voters in Germany who have, you know, kind of uh, bigoted attitudes towards Greeks and towards uh, Spain and Portugal. But, you know, where do they get these ideas reinforced? I mean, they get it from the media who's trying to tell them it's just these lazy Greeks who happen to work many more hours a year than the Germans do, actually. Actually, and it's all their fault, and they spent too much and borrowed too much, and they lied about their uh, the government lied about their deficit. Okay. Well, the last part is true. You know, they did. Greeks is really the only country that really had a debt problem. Actually, the others had a debt problem only because of the financial crisis and the world recession, which was the fault of the bankers and the decision makers that came before the people that the press is supporting. But yeah, if that's what you present to people, you're going to get some people to say it. But I would like to see a poll saying, you know, do you want this uh, unemployment in the whole Eurozone? You can even ask the Germans to continue just so we can bail out these big banks. I don't think they would say yes to that. Well, the New York Times also said in a different piece that a a Greek exit from the euro, which people don't seem to really think is necessarily going to happen, but they said an exit from the euro would, quote, shatter the assumption that there is no retreat from the euro and further destabilize Europe, and it would certainly add fuel to anti-European Union sentiments that have propelled the growth of far-right parties, close quote. Well, that sounds... First of all, like blaming the left for the right, um, though Cyprus himself wrote in an op-ed in the Irish Times, unless the forces of progress and democracy change Europe, it will be Marine Le Pen and her far-right allies who change it for us. Uh, but what I'm also hearing is the danger is if Greece breaks from the program, that'll prove that you can break from the program. <laughs> you know, what, what's the fear here? Yeah, I think the great fear of the neoliberal establishment and the European authorities is that Greece, if they were to kick Greece out of the euro, Greece would probably, they'd have an initial crisis, you know, like Argentina did for three months after they defaulted on their debt and devalued their currency. 
and then they would recover much faster than the rest of the Eurozone, and everybody else would want to leave. That's the ultimate fear. That's why I think they're going to negotiate with Greece. Well, you just co-authored a report, The Greek Economy, Which Way Forward. Briefly, what do you think needs to happen right away, and what are going to be the major obstacles in, in making those things happen? Well, the most important thing, I think, I mean, that's up to the Greek people, but they voted for an end to austerity, which, as I said, is mostly ending, but also to recover. They want an economic recovery so that they can have uh, jobs and restore some of the cuts that have been made, like in public health spending. That's the most important thing. For that, they need a fiscal stimulus. They can't be spending 4% of GDP on interest payments on the debt, at least not until the economy is a lot stronger than it is today. That's what they're going to have to do. And the big obstacle, of course, is the European authorities who have already declared that there's not going to be any debt haircut, any you know reduction of principal, and that even any kind of restructuring or lowering the interest payments is going to be dependent on Greece enacting the remaining reforms that the European Commission wants them to do. So if Syriza is not able to go through with these plans, what what can we expect to hear about the reason uh, that things didn't work out? I mean, I, we can probably guess at that, uh, about how we will read about that in the paper here. Well, I think that there will be some compromise. I think the, the smarter people in Brussels and Frankfurt know that they don't want to take the risk of kicking Greece out of the euro. And Syriza is not going to voluntarily leave the euro. What they'll do is just refuse to implement some of these conditions or they'll reverse some of the ones that have been implemented and then it'll be up to the European authorities to decide whether to kick them out. But if they do have a confrontation and a crisis or there are, you know, negative developments, I think most of the press will probably blame Syriza because that's who they don't like. So blame it on the night. Don't blame it on me. Don't blame it on me. Blame it on the night. Don't blame it on me. Don't blame it on me. My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time. And the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of $5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my commentaries. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. When it comes to elections, there's the who of politics and there's the what of it, by which I mean what do parties and politicians actually do to win support. While they're not brilliant at covering the first, the money media in the States tend to be truly terrible at even considering the latter. The historic election in Greece is a case in point.
Read the U.S. press and you'd gather the following. Greece's new Prime Minister, Alexis Tsipras, is its youngest ever at 40 years old. He's far left, leftist, a leftist political maverick, a tough talker and charismatic. Syriza, the party he leads, is usually called radical, far-left extremist, or some mix of all the above. What's it to you? Well, as Public Radio's Market Report put it on the eve of the vote, quote, the potentially massive repercussions of this weekend's election in a small corner of Europe is one more risk for the world to worry about. So there you have it. Mad leftists win, Americans better watch out. If you read a little deeper, you might get a slightly fuller picture. After five years of recession and cuts, 1.3 million Greeks, some 26% of the workforce, are without a job. Wages are down by 38%, pensions by 45 Almost a third of Greeks are living below the poverty line, and about that many have no health insurance. Running on a pledge to roll back spending cuts and renegotiate Greece's loans, Tsipras's victory is generally described as a protest vote, or a vote against austerity, or the bailout, which it certainly was. But there's a bit more to it, and it's interesting. On the Laura Flanders show, we had a chance to talk with a member of Syriza's Central Committee, Yanis Bournos, not long ago. It's not charismatic speeches from balconies that win support, he said. It's concrete help, and Syriza's offered a good deal of that to Greeks in need in the last few years. As we've reported in the past on the show, a solidarity movement has been growing up in Greece in this crisis. It currently runs some 400 health clinics, a network of community kitchens, what they call food solidarity centers, and cooperative groceries. Stores. When the first Syriza members were elected to Parliament in 2012, they voted to give 20% of their monthly salary to that movement. And as of this August, Bornos said Syriza volunteers were participating in 150 networks of local solidarity, offering everything from free prescription drugs to free legal advice. Left or right, effective leadership is important, but it's possible, just possible, that Greek voters were swayed less by one guy's charisma than they were by hundreds of volunteers with a daily presence in their neighborhoods. If we looked at politics that way, how would U.S. parties rate? Despite many predictions, the left-wing party, it's a coalition of left-wing groups in Greece, won the elections on the last Sunday of January. And they won the elections big. Given that Greece has many parties, their governments have typically been coalition governments. But this victory of the far left by the Syriza party in Greece was a real stunner. They came one seat short of capturing half the seats in the Greek parliament. That would be called in the United States an election that delivered a mandate, a powerful decision by the Greek people en masse in a national election to vote against the two traditional parties, that have been governing Greece, one or the other of them, for 40 years. New Democracy and the Greek Socialist Party alternating pretty much the way the Republicans and the Democrats do uh, in the United States. 
or conservatives and labor in Great Britain, and so on. But the Greek people have had it. Those two parties who used to together get between two-thirds and three-quarters of the vote, together, together, could not get one-third of the vote. And where did the mass of the Greek people go when they left the traditional two parties, center-right, center-left? They went to the far left, not to the extreme right, but to the far left for a radical change of direction. For those who think that conventional politics is permanent, this is a wake-up call. For those who think that in all the countries of the world, the two traditional parties have it all locked up, this is a sign that things may not be so quietly secure in their lockup as you may have imagined or hoped, as the case may be. So now we're going to have a new direction. In the first few days of the new government, that has become crystal clear. So I wanted to talk a little bit about what's being planned and where they're going and what's at stake. First, the Syriza party has long demanded, and its new finance minister, Yanis Varoufakis, has made clear, as has Alexis Tsipras, their leader, that they want a 50% cut in the debts of the Greek government that are now debts to the European Central Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and the European Union. A cut of 50% in their debt, so that the money they might have had to spend paying off a debt that should never have been contracted for can be used instead to deal with what they call the humanitarian crisis. The fact that over the last five years, Greek salaries on average have dropped by between 30 and 40 percent, depending exactly on how you count. That Greece has one of the worst unemployment rates in Europe, 26, 27 percent. That the young people below 30 have an unemployment rate of 60 percent, and so on and so on. The government wants to stop paying off the banks and take care of its people, put them back to work, return to them the pensions that have been cut, build, rebuild to the where it was before, their minimum wage level, and so on. They also immediately stopped an interesting thing. They stopped the selling of the governmental monopoly on public power, electric power. They're not going to privatize that. And they're not going to privatize their major port, Piraeus, either. That shows which direction they're going. They're going to reorder Greek society. That's a little vague still what exactly they mean by that, but the direction is clear. They really are going to help the middle and lower classes. That's their goal, and at the expense of the upper classes. That has not been a government commitment anywhere else in Europe, and it seems real in Greece, and so all eyes, not just Greek eyes, all eyes in Europe and beyond, are now focused on whether and how this commitment of a left-wing party that won a mandate in its national elections, whether and how that will be carried out. I only want to develop, in my remaining minutes of time for this, one dimension of this story that does not get the attention 
it ought to. Leaving the frowns in Europe, unhappy with a left-wing party making those gains, unhappy with the direction this new government is taking, is the German government of Angela Merkel. They're the ones, high officials there, uh, saying that the Greeks must pay all their debts, the Greeks must continue the austerity that has savaged their middle and lower classes on a scale unlike almost anything else in Europe, the Germans insisting. And so I thought it appropriate to remind everyone uh, in this program of a moment earlier in German history that might make one wonder about what the Germans exactly are doing. It's 1953, over half a century ago. World War II is very much alive in everyone's memory, having only ended in 1945, eight years earlier. The German government is desperately trying to rebuild from the devastation of World War II, and the German government is trying to do that while laboring under huge debts. Debts incurred in around World War One at the beginning of the century, and then debts incurred around World War Two. Debts incurred by Adolf Hitler's government and other German governments before. And the Germans say to the creditors they have, French, British, and American banks, and the French, British, and American governments, look, we cannot rebuild from the devastation of the war. That might not have been an argument that meant too much to the French, British, and Americans, who, after all, had been Germany's enemies. But they made another argument that did work. You, they said to the British, French, and Americans, want us to be your ally in the Cold War against the Soviet Union. In order for us to do that, we have to be rebuilt, prosperous, give our workers jobs so that they can be convinced to be anti-Soviet. And here's what we want, the German government said. We want relief from the enormous burden of the debts we have to you, so that we can use the money to build our economy. If that sounds familiar to you, good. Because pretty much that's what the Greeks have asked for. Only they're not asking as anyone's enemy, and they're not asking because they ever used money to wage war on anybody. They're asking because the debt prevents them from getting out from under a global capitalist crisis they did not cause, and a bailout that bypassed the majority of their people. They want now to get out from under. And who's objecting the Germans? Well, let's see what the Germans got. In London, in August of 1953, Britain, France, and America, and German representatives met. And after a year of effort, the Germans got what they wanted. Guess what? Half of Germany's debt, then numbering around 32 billion, half of that, 16 billion, was forgiven, written off. You never have to pay it, and the Germans never did. The other half was stretched out over 30 years so that it could be paid in very small increments. In other words, Germany was relieved of the overwhelming bulk of its foreign debt in order to rebuild its war-damaged economy and to be an anti-Soviet ally. 
this same government does not want to permit the Greeks to do what it itself did. Please think about that as you listen to the rhetoric around making people pay their debts coming out of the German government and German officials. A short memory and one that ought to make at least some people ashamed. Hi, Jay. It's Scott from Sacramento. I'm sure you'll get a lot of responses to Kate on giving up meat. I think that caller is truly heroic in what she would do for the environment, and I don't mean to criticize her. There's nothing invalid about her point. I'm sure a vegetarian diet is better in every single way. However, here's the thing. We're trying to make saving the planet comfortable, convenient, and doable for everyone. For example, I'm just trying to convince my school to recycle their paper, which simply involves throwing paper into a special bin that we already have and not the trash can. Yet for many, even that is just too much trouble. There's no point in going to aesthetic deprivations because the billion or two people in the developed world can't, say, switch to solar or wind. We few liberals are not going to save the world by making our lives miserable which is what a vegetarian diet would mean for many of us happy omnivores who enjoy meat. So meanwhile, the message is probably better to do things like eat less meat, drive less, because walking more and eating more veggies is healthier anyway, not to mention better for the environment. When it doesn't sound as extreme, people are more willing to buy in, which is what we need. That's my only point, not that she's wrong. Not sounding too strident in our tones is absolutely crucial to getting the unenlightened general public to believe that we liberals have common sense and aren't all a bunch of extremist wackos because the tones we can adopt sound so strident because we know that the stakes are so incredibly high. That's it. Thanks for the show. You've opened my eyes so much to the new media. I can't possibly thank you enough. Hey Jay, what's going on? It's Chris from Colorado Springs. I'm one of the certain progressives who still eat meat. And I gotta say, all the points that were brought up are... And if I had to say why I still eat meat, um, I wouldn't say it's cultural, because uh, she brought up a great point about religion and other things, parts of my family's culture that I have jettisoned. Um, you know, I guess it's the same for why I still drive a car, why I don't bike to work and bike to school. And you know it's a pretty pretty lame excuse, but um, you know it's um, it's easier. And I do the best I can. I drive a very fuel efficient little import that gets very good gas mileage, and I, I don't drive a lot. And it's the same thing with meat. Um, when we buy our beef, we actually go in with our neighbors on an eighth of a cow, and we do that once a year. Um, otherwise, we don't buy meat at grocery stores. Um, we don't really buy pork at all. And the chicken we buy is always, you know, free range. I know the brands to, to buy and to where to avoid. And now that Trader Joe's has opened up here in Colorado Springs, um, I don't even have to trip about buying them, that food elsewhere. You know, aside from that, all the, point, all the points that she made are great. But I don't know. I don't 
it, it's kind of scary, I guess you could say. I'm not very well educated on it. I, I was vegetarian for about six months back in the early 90s when it was like the cool thing for all the 13-year-olds to do. But, you know, I know it's not something that my uh, my family is particularly interested in. Uh, it would definitely be something I would have to look into more, uh, educate myself more on, and then figure out a way to uh, convince the people I live with to uh, to have that same kind of diet. Um, otherwise, it just doesn't make sense from a buying groceries point of view. Um, but, you know, if any of the callers have any suggestions onto websites you can look at or things like that for practical, nutritious, balanced vegetarian or vegan diets, I mean, it's definitely something it'd be interesting to look into. And I'm looking forward to hearing what other people have to say. So, thanks, Jay. Take care. Hi, Jay. This is Bill in northern Illinois. And one of the reasons that my family, including my son and my parents who live with us, I think anyway, continue to eat meat even though they know better is, you know, in nurturing customs. It used to be my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, meat was a reward. You know, oh, you can have a nice cut of steak. You can have a nice hamburger. And that's that's a custom a, a thing that they don't want to give up and then there's also the 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 crush the constant crush of time and the the ease of having a frozen pork ground beef steak uh chicken poultry item in the fridge so that you can quickly eat a meal at our house my son who's 13 doesn't eat vegetarian my parents who are in their 60s don't eat vegetarian, but don't eat the same things that my son eats. And that's not something that we're willing to say, all right, if you don't eat their food, you don't eat at all. And it's not something where we can say, if you don't eat vegetarian, you don't eat at all. We, my wife and I, made the conversion three or four years ago, and we're actually sort of backsliding due to the crush of time. We can't make three meals. We can't clean up after three meals. We don't have the time to prepare three meals. And we tried to get my son to eat the same things we were eating, and he just wouldn't eat. He'd have peanut butter and jelly for lunch, nibble the dinner, and starve. And I understand, oh, he's going to eat if he needs to eat, but he wouldn't, and it just killed us. Then there is just the fact that commuting to work, you leave the house at 6, you get back at 5, you still want to have some quality time with the family. You still have to do chores, homework, shovel the walk, mow the lawn, replace the garbage disposal, etc. It's just so much easier, convenience-wise, to continue to maintain those habits. It's not like we live in a food desert. It's just so hard to try and fit in shopping every two or three days if you're going to use fresh produce, fresh vegetables. If you're going to get some beans, you have to have those sort of things fresh so you can make the ingredients. I, I don't know how someone in today's society who doesn't have the convenience of a corner store that feeds them that sort of stuff or has all of that stuff right there in one spot can do it if they have any other considerations. A young couple, that's fine. But we've got a family of five with three different eating styles, and it's just not possible for us to even make the conversion all the way to vegan because just for the, the cramp of space for storage itself. Once again, I know this sounds like an excuse, not an explanation as you were talking about, but that's what it is. 
we've done, we've made the changes we, we can. We haven't eaten meat in five years, perhaps three times in five years. We're making changes. We're doing what we can. We're trying to lead by example. It's an explanation as to why we can't make the full conversion. And I think an explanation as to why my parents, my in-laws, refuse to make the conversion. And an explanation why my son, until he's older, can't make the uh, conversion. Keep up the great show. I know this message was long, and I apologize. But thanks, and have a good week. Hi, this is Julie in Brooklyn. I'm calling in response to Kate's voicemail about the issue of animal agriculture as a primary contributor to global warming and about the question as to why so many progressives are unwilling to eliminate meat and other animal products from their own diets. I'll first say I think she makes a very good point. Uh, we should talk more about animal agriculture as a source of greenhouse gases, and we should be conscious about reducing or eliminating our personal meat consumption for many reasons, including environmental impact. But when Kate guessed that how progressives would likely justify their own meat consumption, she failed to touch on the real reason that had been sticking in my own mind throughout her call, and that's it's just that I frankly do think that changing policy or changing the world, as she calls it, is more important than focusing on voluntary individual sacrifices, changing ourselves, as she called it. As I see it, collective sacrifice is much more effective than personal sacrifice when it comes to solving collective action problems. For instance, um, I were part of a union, I would not want to have to choose to voluntarily pay union dues under right-to-work laws. I would want to be required to pay them like everyone else as a condition of the job. By the same token, I'd gladly vote for and support even legislation that would make animal products radically less available in the service of attacking climate change and other environmental problems. I guess, to put it bluntly, I just haven't been willing to make the individual sacrifice of going vegan when I perceive that only collective action is up to the task of making a real impact. It's the same reason I haven't totally given up driving and flying, even though I believe in structuring society in a way that would drastically reduce the use of both those methods of transportation. All that said, individual actions do matter, I eat relatively few animal products, and if I were a better person than I am, I would probably be a vegan. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klapusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Now, just a few sort of disjointed thoughts for you today. Uh, first of all, I love how the, the food conversation is going. It's been years since... The last time this topic was really discussed in, in any kind of depth on this show. I mean, I've done episodes, but it hasn't really led to conversations. And the last time I, I was shocked when I realized the last time this conversation happened was about 2011, maybe early 2012. And I got to say, it did not go this nicely. The, uh, there were some borderline horrific things uh, said by people on voicemails. I haven't received anything like that so far. Uh, uh, you know, who knows what could be 
coming down the pike. But uh, anyways, I, I, I definitely like how the conversation is going now. I think I think we found a little bit more focus than the last one had, and I, I think that's probably a big reason why the uh, the response has been different. But it's been excellent so far. I'm sure that these will inspire uh, still more comments. So if you'd like to join in, I uh, highly encourage it. The number again, 202-999-3991. And completely unrelatedly, I wanted to mention again, of course, that I have a survey going on. It's totally anonymous. Takes like three minutes to complete. You don't have to write any sentences. Uh, personally, when I'm asked to do a survey, I think like, oh yeah, I could do that. And then I get those blank boxes where they want me to give my opinions about something. And I think, oh, well, never mind. And I promise there are no blank boxes asking for you to fill them in and asking for your opinions. So it would be very helpful if you would fill out that survey and you can find it at podsurvey.com slash left. And I've gotten a couple hundred responses in so far and I was really surprised actually to find that so far, I mean, just of the people who have self-selected and, and opted to fill it out. So it's not a scientific study exactly, but as close as I'm going to get that 70% of the people who have responded are male. And that surprised me because that is almost the same number of male listeners as was reported by the survey that I put out like seven years ago, maybe eight years ago. I mean, like the, I, I just don't do these surveys for the show very often. And so it was an incredibly long time ago, the last time I did it. And I got, you know, I had very few listeners at the time, but, you know, I got, you know, dozens of people filling out a survey and it was something like 70% male. And so I thought, well, this will be really interesting. Years have passed. Uh, demographics have shifted. People actually know what podcasting is now. It's not just computer programmers in their basements doing podcasts. It's, it's like sort of a, a thing that everyone knows about. And, uh, and so, yeah, so I was, I was surprised to find that turns out 70% male listenership at least those who self-select and choose to fill out the survey. Maybe there's a way that it's skewed there. Maybe guys really enjoy filling out surveys and women not so much. Who knows? Whatever the case may be, it would be great to have, you know, maybe a few hundred more surveys filled out. It would be very much appreciated. The website again, podsurvey.com slash left. But that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music you used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained Stories and
Wonder what 